Welcome to authorblurb.com. Today I speak with Paul Attaway. It was a great conversation as all the authors I talk with have amazing stories to tell about their books, about what they're doing. I enjoy talking with them and I hope you enjoy listening to them. Now, just to clear something up, if you are watching the video version of this, I do apologize if I seem to be lagging. I think my connection on the conversation seemed to not be the greatest. So with that, I apologize. But overall, good conversation. Paul was enjoyable. And I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did having it. Now, as always, I encourage you to share the show with anybody you like, anybody you know, people that you might not like. The more you tell people, the more that, one, the authors that you hear, they can get discovered. They can get more and more people following them and finding that book that they love. I also encourage you to find those authors that you like and go out and buy their books. Their ebooks, paper books, audiobooks, whatever they have. The authors are not the major authors, but they're the authors that are meant for you to find and not always the easiest. So take the time, go to the website authorblurb.com where you can find their profiles. Find the shows, find, you can sort by which authors, and I try to make it as convenient as possible. You'll also find videos of the shows, and if you go to listen to the audio, if you want to subscribe, you can either subscribe onto my feed, or I have listed all the different locations that I'm aware of, and that's not saying that that's the only locations, just the locations I'm aware of of where the videos are streaming. So take the time, enjoy, learn more about the authors, and as always, rave me, review me, shoot me an email, let me know what you think. I appreciate it, and it helps me grow. If you don't like something I'm doing, shoot me an email, let me know. I'll work on making it better, or if it really is something that's annoying, I'll try to get rid of it. Other than that, thank you as always. Enjoy the show, and... I look forward to having you join me on the next episode as well as this one. So I'm here talking with Paul Attaway. He has two books in historical fiction, if I'm not mistaken. It's Blood in the Low Country and Eli's Redemption. Paul, I appreciate you being on. If you could tell us a little bit about your book, about yourself, I would really appreciate it because, as everyone knows, it's always better for the author to go in and give these details. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, so this is kind of a third career for me. Um, I, my wife and I, we raised our children in Phoenix, Arizona, and, and I was a small businessman, started and sold a couple of businesses and got burned out by it. Um, I was too young to retire, but I uh, was too old to go get a job or, or start a new business. So I, I consulted and I was an executive for hire for a while, but it wasn't bringing me all that much satisfaction. So I got it into my head that, uh, you know, I could write a book. And I've commented before that <clears throat> I'd finish a book and I'd go, that was a fantastic book. Or I'd finish a book and I'd go, eh, that wasn't so great. Um, you know, I could do that. And so my wife got a bit tired of hearing me say that again and again. And she basically said, well, if you think you can, you know, either do it or, or, or stop yapping about it. So <laughs> I almost took it as a dare. And right. so I, I sat down to, 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 to try to write a book 
And it was at that point that I gained a tremendous amount of respect for people that had written books that I had once arrogantly deemed as not very good. Um, it was significantly harder than I anticipated. But I persevered, had a lot of fun doing it, completed the first book, and received enough positive response from readers that I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe I can make a career of this. So I set out, set, set out to write book number two, which was Eli's Redemption, and that came out last May. Um, and so now this is my full-time career is uh, to be an author. Oh, very nice. So what actually, like, I guess, like you said, it's very difficult to write a book. The The concept, the story ideas, those are always something easy. I, I think everybody has a thousand ideas for a story. What actually pushed you to get all the way through it? Because like you said, you've written a few and you're like, yeah, that's not so good. But you realize that going through the process, not just writing, but everything involved in it, is a bit of a challenge in itself. It is. And I think that the, <clears throat> it, for me, it was almost, you know, uh, you know, where do you start? I had written my whole career. I had always run small businesses, and I was a lawyer for two years. So I, I learned how to write in law school. I've always joked, and I, I learned to, you know, um, if I turned in, if I, if I, if I turned in ten pages, by the time my mentor helped me finish it, we had it down to, you know, four pages. So I learned the economy of words, and I was always writing, whether it was offering memorandums, uh, marketing material, press releases, installation instructions for a product. I had always been busy writing. So writing wasn't new to me, but writing fiction and writing dialogue and crafting story, that was new. So yes, I agree with you. There are thousands of ideas uh, for a story, but there's a great deal more to building a story around a, a, a kernel of a thought than I ever imagined. Uh, developing the characters and, and weaving a story through character development um, that made sense, where the characters were acting, you know, in character in response to the, the um, you know, the, the stuff that as an author we create will happen in their lives. So I focused a great deal on, on story engineering and on writing what I, what, I'm hope, what I hope is a page turner where people want to find out what happens next. So for me, I did a lot of reading on how to write, build a story, on how to write a story. And I, I, I kind of bounced back and forth between writing something and then reading more materials on, on how to write. And so it, it really was a, you know, three steps forward, five steps back, two steps forward, one step back, you know, just kind of move, but, but ultimately moving it forward. Um, if that makes any sense. That it does. So let me start your first book, Blood in Low Country, or yeah, B Blood in the Low Country, I believe it. So with that one there, what got you started with that story? Well, first off, can you tell me a bit about the story? What is it about? Sure. Um, the story is based in Charleston, South Carolina in the 1970s. So just to back up a little bit, um, our, our, our our third of our three children went off to college. My wife and I were empty nesters. Um, we had, one of our children attended College of Charleston, and so to shorten the story, we ended up moving from Phoenix, Arizona, to Charleston, which is where I, I now live. My wife and I we now live, and fell in love with the city. For anyone who's been here would understand, there's there's a lot about the city to fall in love mm -hmm. with. So it was 
Um, so that's where I was when we were writing this story. So, you know, I'm reading about story. And so I'm trying to come up with, okay, you know, storylines and themes and such. And a lot of the, re- a lot of the um, advice one will receive if they go down this path is write what you know. Well, that right. makes sense, write what you know. Well, I was born and raised in Atlanta. So I understood what it meant to be born and raised in the South. I was born in 1963, so I knew what it meant to you know, grow up in the 70s. And um, I, have, I had a wonderful relationship with my father, and he passed away way too early, uh, passed away back in 1998. Uh, so I said, well, I can write about fathers and sons. So I, I kept this basically kind of putting fences on the story. Okay, um, okay what's it going to be about father and son? When's it going to be set? Okay, in the 70s. Where? In the Charleston. So I kept putting these these fences in place so I could I could begin to, to, to craft a story. And so the initial idea came down to father and son. And so then, of course, I need conflict. I need character development. And so the story is about um, a, a family um, Husband and wife, Monty and Rose Atkins, and they're raising two boys in the 70s in Charleston. And um, there are events from the, their, the, the mother's past that rear their ugly head to impact their lives today. There is a murder in their small community, which happens off scene, or by that in any way. Right. Um, but there is a, there's a hunt for the real killer. Uh, one of the boys is falsely accused. And the lives of two families are uh, completely turned upside down. The Atkins family, of course, the family of the, the young girl who was murdered. And I say young, she was, you know, 18-ish. Okay. And so that's the basic storyline. So then we have the, the hunt for the real killer. Uh, but you know, there's character arc amongst several characters. And we, we see how these characters react in response to all of this turmoil in their lives. Their lives were seemingly you know, perfect and wonderful. And they were living the American dream until this bomb blows up and the reader gets to find out uh, how they react to how they change. All right. And so with this, you have all this conflict, all this, these different little factors that play into the story. Where did you, did you pull them from? You said it's a historical fiction. So how much of history did you pull into this to make it a true, make it a historical fiction? Is it just set in yeah. The 70s and that's it? Or did you actually pull events and places from the 70s into the story? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting, you know, historical fiction. Um, I'm darn close to being historical fiction. Uh, if you read the common, if, I, I've researched what is historical fiction and you know, mm-hmm. how old does it have to be? And um, my joke is that, well, if the author was alive at the time in which the book is set, mm-hmm. it really can't be historical fiction. But yet the Sort of the most accepted definition is that if it happened 50 years ago, then it could be considered historical fiction. Well, I'm, I'm really close to 50 years ago. Right. Um, so the, the other genres one could attach to this book would simply dispense thriller, uh, family drama, southern fiction. But with respect to your specific question, um, I, I it, the historical aspects be 
that throughout the story, I'm making reference to cultural events that were taking place. Uh, Monty Atkins, the father in the story, is a huge baseball fan. Mm-hmm. And so there's references to, you know, 1975 World Series, the Cincinnati Reds and the Oakland A's. And so I, I go down and I get the actual facts, who was starting, who was injured, who wins and things like that. Um, another one of the characters in the story is a, is a, is a golfer. And so there's historical reference to, you know, the um, to uh, what year was it? The 1976 Masters, because that was going on. So there's more, I would say, yes, it's historical, but I made more cultural references to kind of create a sense of time and place. Then I also would try to research the locations for events. Was this restaurant open in 1975? Can I place a scene? So. Um, I went, I, I would do research on what hotels and restaurants were in business back in the mid-70s that might still be in business today. And so I, I, I tried to stay true to the cultural times and place and location. Um, and I think I did a good job at that. Again, this, we're only going back to the 70s and like deep research or anything like that. <laughs> Uh, and and also having grown up in the 70s, I, I understood what the attire was. Um, Monty Atkins is also a, a college football fan. He attended the University of Alabama in my book. And so um, I was able to you know make references to, you know, when Alabama played Georgia Tech and when they're, in, they're in Atlanta, there's a scene in Atlanta at the varsity. Well, if you know anything about Atlanta or anything about uh, Georgia Tech football, then you know all about the varsity. It's a restaurant that is still there. So uh, I was that that was, I was able to draw on. And my father went to Georgia Tech, and my father worked at the varsity. He was in college for a short period of time. So, and my father was a baseball and golf fan, golfer, a fan of golf. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to you know draw on my own personal memories of growing up and seeing my dad listen to a transistor radio and listen to the games being broadcast on a Saturday. Um, so a bit of the the uh, research was simply, you know, kind of plumbing my own of uh, having grown up in, you know, growing up in uh, in Atlanta in the 70s. Understand. <clears throat> so with that being said, where does, I guess, is it more directing toward, or better, the better question that I like to always ask is if I open up the book on page one, where do you draw us in on page one? Are we in the Atkins home, are we in other people's home? Is it a generalization? Where do we start off with that book? All right, so that, that's a great question. And if there is one chapter in the book that got rewritten more than any other chapter, it was chapter one. It's also <laughs> the very first scene that I wrote. And um, I received advice from a gentleman that had a fair amount of experience in the field of storytelling. Um, as I was struggling down this path of writing a book, and his advice was just to write, just write, and and don't worry about writing a story, just write, and then piece it together later. So I wrote this scene of a young boy in high school living in Charleston. It's early in the school season. He's a sophomore, 
and he is in a cross-country meet. So I place him on Kiowa Island, which is about half an hour or so from downtown Charleston, and that's where the Kiowa Cup, this mythical high school cross-country meet, would take place. And so that's where it starts. You're immediately placed into the low country, which is the coast of the Carolinas. And you're immediately placed there. And we have this young boy and he's struggling to, you know, and he's, you know, he's, he's working hard. And in chapter one, a conflict between the father and the son is immediately introduced. And that, 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 that conflict is that the father uh, pushes his son, hopes for the best, has that good old fashioned Protestant work ethic, and the son is striving so hard to please his father, and he works hard and works hard, and and um, uh, he comes in second again to his nemesis, this boy who's just this naturally good runner who just seemingly can't be beat. So right in the first chapter, we have an introduction of conflict with the father, and we have an introduction of the place and how that will impact the rest of the story. All right. So now we ended up going through that book and. You wrote all that, you published it, and then you decided to write another book, Eli's Redemption. Is Eli's Redemption a follow or sequel to Blood in the Low Country, or does that bring us into a whole new world? Um, It's a sequel. That being said, I wrote the book with the reader in mind such that if they hadn't read the first book, the second book would be standalone. All right. And, and, and that was a challenging goal, to write a book that, if you'd read the first book, the second book would be new material and interesting. But if you hadn't read the first book and you started with the second, it, it would make sense to you. But also the hope was that if you read the second one first, you could go back and read the first one and it would also be you know, entertaining. So in Eli's Redemption, we have a lot of the same characters, but I introduced some new characters. You know. Um, uh, we needed a new bad guy in the in the second book. And the second in the first book, uh, you know, it's hard to talk about. Um, you never want to give away the spoilers or the or the plot twist. Right. The, sec- the second book left a lot of unanswered questions. It answered a lot of questions, but it also left people wondering, well, what happened to Eli? What happened? What happened? We we want to know. And so, you know, I when I was writing the first book, I did not have a sequel in mind. It wasn't until I was close to the end of the first book that I thought, you know, I could see a second book coming out of this this plot mess. And so I planted a few things in the second book that gave me a launching off point, but also didn't pin me in too much. So I, I had some material in the first book that I could play off of. So the second book does answer a lot of those. Um, actually, I think answers all of the answered question in the first book. Um, and we learn more about about the um, character Eli, who is so Rose and Monty have two children, Walker and Eli, and and, uh, and um, Walker plays more of a role in the first book, and then Eli plays more of a role in the second. Okay, and then where does Eli's redemption is it taking place? I assume close to the same time period, or does it take further down the road? In- same time period. It's it's still in the seventies. And uh, it takes place, uh, half of the story takes place in Charleston, South Carolina, and the other half takes place in uh, the Bahamas. All right. So what kind of events or what kind of incidences are drawn? Because I'm assuming that it's still in the same genre of, like you said, suspense or thrillers, things like that. What type of events start to unfold at the beginning of the book to draw people in? 
Okay, uh, that's going to be a difficult one to answer because I don't want to give away the ending in the first Understand. One. Right, but um, basically uh, this much you can tell by reading the back of the book. You know, the back book description for Eli's redemption is that Eli has to flee Charleston. He has to flee because he's been accused of uh, murdering uh, his girlfriend, this, this young woman. And so uh, basically the second book picks up um, that trail as to how he was able to um, escape Charleston, how he was able to build a new life um, in the Bahamas, and his hopes and dreams of being able to return to Charleston as an innocent man. And so the second book really is a story of his desire to, to uh, regain his life and all the all, all the you know, hurdles he has to clear, all the struggles, all the challenges, and in the process of living in in, in um, the Bahamas, uh, you know, he builds a life. He meets people, he develops relationships, and he happens an athletic phenom, and he takes up the game of golf. And through this, he is introduced to a um, a genuine bad guy who is a um, um, who kind of gets his claws into him. Um, and and so we have a subplot of this bad guy that continues to try to hold him down and, and keep him from being able to regain his life. So he's got multiple battles he's fighting uh, and will regain the life that he had living in Charleston. Okay. And he, and, and, and he meets a girl along the way. So there's a love interest as well. All right. So now how did you end up choosing the Bahamas? Because I know the Bahamas aren't too far off coast. But what made you decide to go to the Bahamas and not South America or Canada or something like that? Uh, good question. Um, the The answer to that question is, well, now that I'm living here in Charleston, my love for history has been rekindled. You know, I think all of us at some level appreciate history. Right. And I certainly did. Uh, I had a wonderful high school teacher, my favorite teacher ever, and she really did a, uh, a wonderful – she was a great teacher, and mm -hmm. she instilled it. So anyway, okay. So I'm learning all about, um, you know, a lot of the history that I knew back in 10th grade, and you forget. Well, in, in Charleston during the Revolutionary War, there were basically two factions. There were the Patriots and the Loyalists. The Patriots were on the side of breaking away from Great Britain, and the Loyalists were loyal to the crown. And it was a pretty even 50-50 split in uh, many parts of the South, especially in Charleston. Well, uh, the Loyalists did not feel welcome in, the, in South Carolina once the Revolutionary War was over. So many of them fled, and they fled to Florida. Florida was not uh, did not fight in the war. At the time, half of it was colonized by Spain and half by Great Britain. And in the Treaty of 1783, which ended a number of wars, one of which was the Revolutionary War, uh, Florida returned to being a Spanish colony. Well, the Brits, who had fled Charleston, again, felt unwelcome now in a Spanish colony, and they fled again. Many of them went to the Bahamas, which was still a British colony. And uh, King George II, um, as compensation to what they had lost in Charleston, granted them land in the Bahamas. So the Bahamas are, I don't know, some 700 islands. Mm -hmm. Na Nassau um, was where a great many of them ended up. Uh, there were other islands as well. And so all these Brits, 
about 5,000 British came to the Bahamas and received crown land as compensation for the land they had to abandon in the, this, in the, in the colonies of the United States of America. So there is a connection between the Bahamas and Charleston that was established. These uh, loyalists had to flee and they ended up, and they ended up making a tremendous impact on the island. They, they brought their ways with them. They tried to establish a plantation economy did not work for a variety of reasons, but they did end up making a huge impact on the economy and the culture of the Bahamas. So there's always been this connection between the Bahamas and Charleston. All right. So, now, I, that, so anyway, that was why I chose the Bahamas. That and the fact that it's a short, uh, you know, like 60 miles north of Florida. It's close. Yeah, I was going to say it's not a far trip down there. So what made you, I guess, what drove you to write with murder and all these different conflicts, what got you into writing those and how did you come to address those? Because there's several ways of murdering somebody off. Right. And I mean, like right now I'm writing a book where actually I'm writing, trying to write two, but one of them is where the guy's an assassin. And there's a lot of ways I'm finding to kill somebody off. Yeah. And like you said, not to glorify it, but you just simply, do you simply say they were murdered or how do you address that? Yeah. Um, so in the, in the genre that you're writing, the, 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 uh, the, the, the method of murder and everything around it plays a bigger role. Yeah. What I was writing really, uh, as I, as I mentioned, as I got started, I wanted to write about fathers and sons. And so the book, when I originally began to write it was really through the perspective of the son Walker. And so I'm writing the story and I'm, I'm throwing in some anecdotes, some childhood memories, of, you know, just, you know, what life was like at the dinner table and such. So I'm writing and I'm enjoying it. But at some point I realized this is really boring. You know, <laughs> no one's going to want to read this. You know, it, you know, in most of our lives, fortunately, are, are not as um, chaotic at times or entertaining as, as fiction can be. So um, I ended up changing the perspective of the story and I wrote it from the father's perspective. And so that gave me greater breadth of experience uh, to write about. So I began writing it from the father's perspective on, on the challenges that he was having raising these two boys because there was conflict between the mother and the sons. And so this father found himself being pulled in two directions. Anyway, back to your question, um, quite simply, you know, I, I joked when my book was boring, you know, someone had to die. Um, and so I, I came across the, the, I said, okay, someone's got to die. And so someone dies, but, but the, um, you know, I, I just, it, it wasn't necessary for me to describe the murder because that really had no bearing on the story at all. The bearing on the story was that she had died. And there is a powerful scene where the father is brought by the police to identify is this body we found your daughter and he he walks up on and he, he and he sees his daughter and so it's it's a very powerful scene so that's as close as i get to describing anything that might be kind of i'd say gore um now later in the book we have a hunt for the killer and uh, bring in a private detective that helps out and such and i i get into the state of um forensics technology as it was understood in the 70s. And today, our technology is so much more. Back mm -hmm. in the 70s, blood identification really was still, you know, A, B, O, negative and positive. 
they were just developing the technology to be able to pull down and be able to more closely identify um, a blood sample with a particular person. So I get into that a little bit, um, which which is um, I enjoyed I enjoyed writing. All right. So now you said that writing is now your career. So I'm assuming there's going to be a third book coming out. Do you have any indications of what you're writing? Is it going to be part of this series or are you going another direction? That's a great question. And I wish I had the answer for that <laughs> because I'm, I'm pointing to my floor, uh, probably very similar to yours. If you're working on two books, you got lots of stacks. So mm-hmm. um, I'm working on, excuse me, <coughs> excuse me. I'm working on um, uh, uh, part three um, and I've got books three and book four. I'm working on two books. Each one is, is a continuation of the series. One's kind of a spinoff. I take one character and I'm trying to develop a whole storyline just around this one character. Um, and they will both be historical fiction. And um, I am, uh, I'm doing a lot of research and the research is almost becoming um, my form of procrastination because uh, I'm sort of stuck. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing some real writer's block here trying to get going. And, and um, I'm trying, actually this morning I broke out a book that I enjoy reading called The Anatomy of a Story, which helps me focus again on, on you know, putting fences around my story and trying to come up with, you know, the underlying premise. So I'm, I'm really back at the beginning as I start out uh, book three. I've been, re- I've been reading for six months um, and I've got half a dozen legal pets full of scratched out notes <laughs> and about it's about, about six different storylines, and I, I can't figure out which one um, is going to work. I understand, and I know that it's very common for a lot of writers to get sucked down that rabbit hole of research. And I mean, a lot of times you can find a lot of good information and come up with new ideas doing so. But it's also it's very easy, thanks to Google nowadays, just to go down that path and spend hours, if not days reading and researching and everything involved. Absolutely. So where does, what, I guess, do you have an idea of what characters you're planning on bringing back? Or if you already started two of them, I assume you already have an idea of the characters you're working with. Yes. Uh, the <clears throat> book three is, okay, so again, there were the, these two boys in books one and two, Walker and Eli. And Walker played a bigger role in book one, but was pretty much non-existent and he appears in like two scenes. Okay. But uh, he's in high school during these two books. So uh, he has to grow up. And so I have him going off to college uh, and he wants to live overseas. So he finds himself um, in Europe when the wall falls in 1989. So I, I have him right now, I, I have him working for a, uh, basically um, a venture capital group that is a front for the CIA. Um, as the wall is falling and the Soviet Union is collapsing, um, the methods and the battles on the forefront are going to be somewhat different. So um, I've been researching the rise of the oligarchs in Russia in the early 90s and, and all of the chaos that ensued there. But I've also been researching um, the Russian Revolution. And there's a tremendous amount of um, uh, research that's been done on what happened to all the Russian gold that the Romanov family possessed, uh, what happened to it after they were assassinated. And um, so I'm, I'm playing with some different storylines involving um, and, and trying to, you know, write a story today with sort of flashbacks to, to, to what was happening. That's book, 
Um, book four involves one of the characters that's introduced in Eli's redemption, and um, he is a um, um, a very uh, well-off young man by virtue of his parents and his grandparents, and he is a um, um, uh, a chaser of one of a kinds, um, the rarest of rare um, items, whatever that might be, and that um, that desire to be a collector takes him on travels around the world in search of the first this or the oldest that. It's basically a series of mysteries that I'm with him as the primary character. All right. So it sounds like you have a lot on your plate and yeah. a lot going on there as well. So I guess it comes down to is, do you have, are you going to keep yourself publishing now, correct? That is, that is correct. And are you going to keep going down that route or are you going to work with traditional publishing what do you plan on doing there? You know, I think at this point, uh, where I stand today, I will continue to be uh, an independent author, self-published. Um, I think to some extent that is, um, I, I'm, I, you know, I turn 60 next year and, you know, the re um, I'm realistic. An agent looking for a new author is probably going to focus on someone who's younger. Uh, the reality is if it takes me a year and a half to turn a book out, I've got maybe five, six more books in me, uh, realistically. Um, so I've, I've tried hard uh, with my first book to get an agent. Then I tried uh, going directly to a second tier. I hate that sounds derogatory, but a smaller <laughs> publisher. That, I understand. Accept, that, that accepts manuscripts directly from an author. And, you know, that is that in and of itself is such a job. Um, that you know, being self-published um, gives me tr more control over how the books are marketed. I can lump them together and offer the two books as a discount. Um, I mean, I've read stories of basically you write a series, you're with the publisher, then they drop you for your next book, and it creates complexity. Mm -hmm. And so as, I, as it stands now, uh, my goal is just to continue to be a self-published author. Um, I, I, I do admit to having breakdowns where I will then go, wait a minute, let's try again. And I'll spend two or three days, you know, researching how to find a distributor, how to find a publisher, how to, um, you know, the Achilles heel for a self-published author is the bookstore. It's just so hard. Right. Well, I know that with um, a lot of the storage, a lot of dealing with all the different things that come with being a self-published author, there's a whole lot of challenges. There's thankfully now for print on demand, you have a lot more flexibility. But like you said, I have, I think out of my three books, I have maybe 50 to 60 books just stacked up. And you're like, okay, where do I store these on top of all my other reading books? So with that being said, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I do appreciate you being on. Where would you like people to find you? Because you have all the information that you've given me on a profile for on authorblurb.com. I'm including it all in the show notes here as well. But where is the best place if somebody wants to reach out and talk with you? If somebody wants to find your books, where do you prefer them to go? Well, the easiest place is just my website, pauladaway.com. And my last name is you know, A-T-T-A-W-A-Y. So pauladaway.com. Uh, and there you can reach out to me on the contact page. You can find all my social media links. You know, uh, my Instagram account is simply author Paul Attaway. Facebook account is author Paul Attaway. But that's all there at my website. So the easiest is just to go to the website 
and then you'll be taken to where you can buy the book, how you can reach out to me, etc. Well, it sounds perfect. I, again, appreciate you being on. I enjoy talking with you. Hopefully, when your next book comes out, you remember to reach out to me, and we can talk about it then as well. Absolutely. Thank well, you. Until, thank you. So until then, this is the end of the conversation for everybody else. But if you can hold on for me a minute, I'd like to keep talking to you. Love to. That is the end of the show, the end of the conversation, but not the end of all the authors. Come back next week, and we will have another author, somebody for you to find, love, and enjoy. And hopefully, you're sharing these authors, sharing the show, sharing the website, authorblurb.com, with people you know, because every reader deserves to find that author they love. So again, goodbye from authorblurb.com where authors and readers connect. And remember, we appreciate you being here and look forward to seeing you at the next episode.